This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today I have a special guest. His name is Jason Walker, and he is the chief innovation officer at a company named Big Panda. Now, as you guys know who listen to the show, my nickname is The Big Panda. So when I saw this company come across my email, I said, listen, we got to find out what it's all about. They play in a world of AI ops. Jason, welcome to the show. Please tell us, what is Big Panda? What is AI ops? And explain what you guys do. Okay. Uh, I think it's a happy coincidence that the, the nickname is there. Uh, but yeah, AI ops is pretty simple. So um, companies run on digital services. Almost everything is online these days, and they have to keep those services running. And there's a bunch of very old processes to do that that have existed for about 30 years. AI ops is basically the application of data and AI to that core problem set. So what we do we take in all your sensing data about how those services are running and what you're doing with them. And then all of the things that your organization knows about those services, how they're built. And we turn that into a nice uh, AI driven contextualized package that we send to your outbound systems, either the people and teams who are tasked with running those services, or we can send it to uh, tools and orchestration systems that'll fix those services for you automatically. But it's all about keeping those services running as easily and efficiently as possible. My mind starts racing immediately when people say this stuff because, and I think most people's minds do race because they always go to the problems that they know, right? And they think, could that be solved with software? And that's always the question, right? Can, it, can the software actually know? Because you, the, the latter part of what you mentioned is the most exciting, which is it can possibly solve the problem on your behalf without you putting your fingers on the keyboard, that would be sick. Give us an idea of the problems or some of the problems that it can identify, alert to, and more importantly, solve, because I think that's the most exciting part of where AI ops is going. So let's take a modern service. It's built on some mix of cloud-based and legacy on-prem technologies and kind of a shared service stack. And some stuff it'll run on like the ISP that we're both working on right now. Mm -hmm. That's a dependency to getting that service delivered. And um, so there's all these components that are, that, you know, come to exist that make a service run and you're monitoring those with observability systems, some sort of, you know, alerts that get generated, metrics, logs, traces, that sort of thing. And uh, interpreting those was up until, you know, five, six years ago, a very human process. An alert fires somewhere on some server or some network device or a application performance monitoring tool. And a person looks at it and decides what to do, which is a super primitive way to, to go about that. Well, at, at every organization, there's this whole host of data around how the service is architected and what components are involved with it and how, how they have relationships and dependencies on one another. So we take all that in. And we use AI to, to ingest it and then group the alerts because a lot of times you have a whole bunch of alerts and events configured that will uh, be related to one common failure. Let's say a network capacity issue slows down this, this meeting and we start to experience some lag and some latency. That's going to cause uh, all sorts of symptomatic alerts that then uh, are triggered 
but aren't actually the root cause. What you need to deal, deal with mm-hmm. is that capacity issue. And so you got to triangulate that very quickly. You can only do that if you know how the service is architected, you know how it's constructed, know all those components and what they're experiencing. So you try to put all that together. And it is a big processing and correlation and enrichment exercise to get it all in one place and then deliver it ideally as a context-aware package to, let's say, an Ansible or, or a Terraform or something else that can take action on that component that's failing. So give us an idea of how this even begins, because one of the things that I've learned through doing the show and meeting with different people that are still in, uh, that are still operating as a CIO or CTO of different companies is that if you ask the simple question, like what does your ecosystem of technology look like? A lot of them don't really know the answer, right? They have a guess. They know some like the major core services of which they maybe are directly responsible for and subscribing to and leveraging for their applications and, or, you know, whether it's internal or external customer applications, how does the process begin? Because you you made a key point there, which is like, it first needs to know how everything's architected first in order for it to even begin to come up with a viable solution. Um, how does one person get started? Because I think you would agree. At the, then, and like the bigger the company, the more complicated this enterprise, uh, enterprise application layer looks. Like it looks, I don't even know what it looks like. It's like spaghetti. It it's probably one of your old military diagrams yeah. back in the yeah, day. It is. Uh, it absolutely is a messy, messy environment. And I'd say- your point, like that sounds very hard to do. It is very hard to do. And getting yeah. to a hundred percent solve on that, I would say is out of reach for most companies. And the, the bigger the service and the older the service in a lot of cases, that makes it very, very difficult. But what they have in, in, in what uh, all enterprises have to their benefit is a whole bunch of systems like CMDBs and service maps and architecture diagram that they're keeping and they're just hanging on to those. And security systems that are crawling through all their systems and establishing, hey, here's everything that exists, all of all of my uh, endpoints. And what you do is, is you approach the solution. And we use a concept called enrichment mapping to do that. You collect data from every source that you have and you reduce it to a common format. And we use JSON and we uh, reduce it to enrichment maps that then all of your observability, all the sensing data that you bring in, it falls through those enrichment maps and picks up attributes. So now I've got, you know, a single alert that usually comes with, you know, six key value pairs, let's say, and I'm adding 200 additional tags to it. And now I, I see those uh, events come through and I look at what tags they have and I can start to correlate them together and I can start to, to infer some of those relationships that might not be explicitly stated in structured data but I can, I can definitely start to see commonalities between them, group them together. And then uh, it's very easy from a natural language processing standpoint to then convert that into something human read- readable that also with Gen AI, which I know we'll get into, you can speculate on root cause there. You can, you can try to find, well, from your observability and from all the context you gave me, it looks like this is the direction you should start your, your research. And that's, that's the vast majority of cases is you, you point them towards the answer. For the more basic stuff, auto remediation is definitely possible. If it's just a single server that ran out of disk, yeah, I can I can automate that from, from top to bottom and I just give the, the human a report that says you know, something broke and I fixed it. You're welcome. The way you describe it sounds almost like omnichannel marketing, how 
they continuously, you know what I mean? Like they want to tag every source of content, yeah. whether it's social or online or web, all to create a story or an understandable story of where does my customer come from before they purchase my things. And in your world, it's, hey, where's this data flow from before an error occurs? Or how does this happen? Where does the error come from? It sounds like that when 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 I'm trying to relate it to something else of that. Yeah, right? and it's it's actually funny you say that because we get some of our developers from that side of the house. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. because marketing is a close is better. And if you're close enough, you'll you'll get more impressions, you'll get more marketing bang for the buck. Ops is mission critical. So if you if yeah. you make an assumption that's wrong, you pay for it, usually in service availability time, and that can be very costly. And so uh, we have to kind of retrain anybody who comes from that side of the house where, you know, <laughs> one of our AI developers helped with, um, you know, suggesting the next song in your music lineup. And they do uh-huh. that on the basis of what you listened to before. Well, that's a very similar problem, but suggesting the root cause can point you in a very, very different direction than just, Hey, I I don't really like this one. Let's skip to the next one. You can't skip to the next root cause. That's a great way to frame it up. (laughs) That's a great way to frame it up. uh, Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, there's, you know, everybody looks at kind of aerospace as kind of the ultimate there's life or death rockets blow up. If you mess up, Mm. we're, we're not quite to that extreme, although some of our customers are, uh, we got a bunch of airlines and and some some large financial services companies that that if they mess up, it costs a lot and it can really impact their customers or their business. I always think about industries that when when I when I always talk to talk to our guests, I like to relate to industries that we all understand. Uh, travel travel in hospitality and logistics seems to be the one that where we as everyday citizens notice the most when something goes wrong. Like I think everyone notices when they can't check into a flight because systems are down. I think everyone notices, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. <laughs> that the package that they were critically depending on and got an alert that says it was going to be here today doesn't actually show up or, or something like that. And so I think that the, the way you described it is perfectly great, which is like, Hey, if I'm wrong in my song suggestion or my e-commerce cart, like no one cares. You, you might not even notice, like yeah. you might, not, you might <laughs> You might not even notice. (laughs) Right. Give us an idea of what a company's world looks like before installing Big Panda and then after, because this is where I think it really helps quantify and solidify this picture of like, hey, this company spent this many hours trying to troubleshoot tickets. They only solved them at this percentage rate. And I know, I know you might not be able to give specifics, but give us an idea of what is a customer's world look like. And then I'm sure they want to do proof of concept because that's how most enterprises now buy. And then they want to see a result and understand what they're going to get because it sounds pretty darn good. Like if you could guide me in the right place each and every time, I would be able to solve most of my problems much faster. Give us an idea of what this looks like. Sure. And I have the advantage. I actually came from a big Panda customer. So I worked in IT. I was fortunate enough to have a great operations team and a little development team and a process team all under my roof. So I kind of owned the implementation of the op stack that we put in place. Yeah. Uh, we got to plug the company though. It's because it's not just any company. <laughs> Activision Blizzard. There you go. Activision Blizzard, which so every, for everyone listening, whether we talked about mission critical, but I know in the world of gaming, according to my kids, when the game doesn't work, this is the biggest problem Gamers are, yeah. <laughs> in lifetime. <laughs> I, I actually, I don't miss that part of it. Gamers can be some of the most vocal 
uh, people in the world and they will switch at the drop of a hat. Your game goes down and they go to the next one. And we, we <laughs> ran our own network backbone, an awesome uh, engineering team on the network side, and then all of our server infrastructure. We have data centers all over the world. And it was a big service to operate and latency was everything. 50 milliseconds, anything over that, they start to complain. And, you know, wow. ask any, ask anytime you experience lag and, you know, you're trying to shoot somebody in a game and you miss because <laughs> your system lags, you're like, oh, I, I hate this game. But that, that's what happens. You have to run those services to kind of this very high performance level, depending on the, the service and the customer that you're looking at. And in the world before AIOps, in, in the world before Big Panda, uh, it's very manual. It's very ticket driven and it's very, it's almost parasitic on the organization. So you have, we had a centralized operations team. It was we called it a global network operations center and they were responsible for interpreting all the alerts coming in, but also on each of the game teams. And you can imagine the, the world of Warcrafts and Diablos and Overwatches and Call of Duty teams. They had live ops guys watching uh, alert streams, trying to figure out what's going on. Is my service healthy or not? And they're talking to each other and they're configuring new alerts. And you could look at it like one, one set of engineers and developers is throwing alerts at an ops team and the ops team throws tickets back at them. And that it's very dysfunctional. And it really hurts because when you get that ticket, you either know what to do with it and you do that. You, you remediate it or you, or you trigger an automation or, or whatever else. Or you know that it's noise and you close it out and you say, hey, I don't need to deal with that. Or you don't know what to do with it and you reassign it to somebody else. And then the second set of eyes goes through that same process again. And in the world before AI ops, that would tickets would bounce around and some of them would be, oh, yeah, this was due to a change. This was due. I, I made a network config change and it triggered all these alerts. But it took getting to the person who made that change to, to put those two facts together. And that is this very lengthy and haphazard process. And you're kind of awash with tickets and there's just, you know, the ticket vendors are very happy about that, but it's not real good for the business <laughs> and, and everybody hates them because it's this kind of very, very old manual process of, hey, here's an incident ticket. Oh, I'll, I'll put it on the pile. And so there's all sorts of organizational dysfunction that follows from that, but it's really costly from an FTE perspective, from a like engineering resources that are looking at noise instead of working on projects. And so it was a very tense relationship. And so sometimes tickets would last months and months and months, but they definitely last Oof. hours. Yeah, the oldest one I saw was a, was a toddler. We were about to put him into preschool. But it, it was one of those things where like, there has to be a better way. And so we, we looked at all the solutions and we did exactly what you said. I want to run a POV. And I actually threw my full uh, event stream. I just said, let's do Coke Pepsi challenge with this thing see what the outputs look like versus my current stack, which was rules-based event management and very, there were some homegrown components, but it was very cobbled together, I would say. And yeah. I, I described it to other people as like, it's like the gnarliest Excel if then <laughs> statement you've ever seen. Yeah. A lot of nesting <laughs> going on. There. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, you bring in, um, in our case, Big Panda and you just, ingest all those alerts from all your observability, all those changes, and all of your topology data, which we had about 40 separate systems. And all of a sudden, it's not up to the people in the operations center or to that DevOps engineer or SRE to go look that stuff up. We give it to them 
at, at their fingertips. The moment they see the alert, here's everything we know about the space around that alert, the topology and the systems. And, and here's what else is going on in proximity. Here's the other alerts that are firing from your APM, from your network monitoring system, from your, some of your internal and from, from your synthetics, client telemetry. And then here's the ISPs that are running maintenance right now. At, out at the last mile because clients like we a lot of times get uh, problems that originated not with us, but at, at you know, some third party level like we, we talked about. And so now all that data is right there and just right out the door, you have half as many tickets. And that was that was during the POV. I was like, there's a, there's mm-hmm. a lot less coming out of that stream than there is out of that stream. And it was higher quality. So you were correlating together 30, 40 alerts that ordinarily would be handled as singletons. So all of a sudden I have the full picture. And the, the great thing about that initial implementation is we switched it on to automatically share to Jira and to Slack. And so we would auto join all the participants, everybody who needed to know about an incident to the ticket and to the chat. And all of a sudden they just start collaborating and we put a little summary statement at the top uh, of each incident saying, here's what we know about what's going on. Very simple. And it's very simple integration. We honestly did it in about you know four hours for the observability side. Took a little longer on the outbound side, but it was a very quick implementation. And you know, the ticket reduction was one thing. The reduction in friction and the trust that came out of that, I think, was the bigger thing. Because that ops team usually produces a lot of noise for the rest of the organization. They're they get into that scenario where, hey, I, I got this alert. I turned it into an incident ticket, and now I'm going to guess at uh, who the right person to assign it, it to is, and I'm going to assume that it's not noise. So they kind of defer that decision off to a more expensive resource. And that's where the trust breaks down, is the SRE or the DevOps engineer or the developer or the programmer gets a look at that ticket, and they're like, how could you not know that this is noise? Like, I knew about that change that they were doing over there, or I knew that this alert is always noise. You get 400 of these a day. And the, once you get that trust back, I would say a, a very good thing starts happening. And talking to my um, one of the, the guys I got to work with back at, at Blizzard, they just launched a huge game, uh, Diablo 4. And for anybody who knows about that game, its launch went incredibly smoothly for a Blizzard game. It was uh, absolutely, and it's because the team actually reached out to that op center to configure everything and, and ask them, hey, how should we handle operational events and how can we be on the same page from day one? No more throw it over the fence, no more build versus run. It was all in, in under one umbrella in one pipeline using all the same uh, data and context to, to make it run. For the um for the time to resolution, did that also drop on a per ticket basis? Because you mentioned like fifty percent ticket reduction. Yeah, yeah, fifty percent ticket reduction. What about time to time to completion? So if you think about traditional operations, it's this series of manual steps that you go through to classify an incident. Like there's a timestamp when that alert fires, and then you have to determine a whole bunch of different data points about that. Where is it? What's going on? Who is it assigned to? What's the priority? all that stuff. And then you have to get it into your systems. And usually that's very manual. It automate yeah. pieces of it. And maybe you have to deduplicate that event stream because it's uh, stateless and you got to smush 3000 uh, little events into one big alert. And what you see once you, once you bring in a big panda is those data flows are all automated now. 
but there's no more like human lookups. There's no more cut and paste the alert text into some knowledge management system. It is, here's what this means. And here's your ticket fully filled out and ready to go and assign, or here's your playbook to uh, your orchestration system because we've already selected the runbook and it's really hand delivered at that point. So what that does to MTTR is uh, similarly, like depending on how manual you are before you start, it will automate the vast majority of, of things that are not really worthy of human attention, honestly, They're very manual, <laughs> very manual processes. And people shouldn't be filling out web forms if the data is just in a different system anymore. And that it's simple things like that, honestly, that are so effective in this space. With the way you described it, I started immediately extrapolating into other things that we do in work to that, you know, that some of our listeners that may not be familiar with this might be un- trying to understand. And I equate it to a great majority of your day, if you're working on any given project, is actually the gathering of the information. It's literally emailing and slacking somebody to ask them, like, did you do this? What was your change? Uh, especially if it's a multi-pronged approach. So let's say, for example, if you are have ever, for anyone who's ever done this, up, been in charge of updating a website. Well, a website's nothing but um, think about like empty containers where you're going to put blocks of information in. Like, who owns these blocks? You never know. What's Who's got the most current version of the graphic? Who's got the photograph? Who's got the copy? Who's got this? Who's got that? Who's got the nav map? Whatever. Right. The actual execution of laying out a website is not the hard part. It's the gathering of all the data. And if, like you said, if you had all the data, you probably could solve it quicker. But because you're running tickets back and forth, punting over a fence, no one's looking at it. You know, you mentioned there might be one ticket that's a toddler, four years old. You know, like it's, yeah. it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> like these things, this is a huge challenge. And so I'm just picturing because I relate it to other. I always want to relate it to other things that I'm even more familiar with. Is this this technology that sits in between technologies? It's like effectively to be in between services, gathering information and almost writing it up for me. So that the pre- people who can solve the problems have everything that they need to know. And like you said, no false positive or much fewer false yeah. positives, accurate tickets, complete comprehensive information, traceability of historical records. No need to ask somebody else, hey, did you log this correctly? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> and, and then, yeah, of course, you'd be able to solve problems super fast. When you saw the output, you mentioned right before, right away, you saw 50% ticket reduction. How much longer did you have to run your uh, your your proof of concept before you're like the decision? At made. that point, it wasn't me on the slow end. It was legal and procurement. It, it was <laughs> all right. How do we get this thing approved and up? And honestly, from POV to go live was uh, less than three months, and we hardened it up wow. uh, afterwards. But it was a dramatic departure from what I was used to, which is usually with a system that invasive that touches that many systems. It can take six, you know, you measure it in quarters usually, and you got PM. Yeah. Usually the implementation of something like that might take a year. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you'll hear about nightmare implementations of many products. Well, I, I was really lucky. I had a really good team. And uh, yeah. on both sides, it was really interesting. The, the folks on, you know, I'm part of Big Panda now, but the guys at Big Panda who were uh, walking us through that, they've seen hundreds of organizations go through this process. And ops teams operate very in a very lonely space. There's not big conferences for for Knox. There's not like a community <laughs> of best practices. It's kind of well. Here's ITIL and service management and a couple of systems. Do what you can. 
and they're kind of on their own. And having now a, a community um, of solution architects and, and folks like that to help you through that journey, plus some very, very dedicated people at, at my company, at Blizzard, that were just, they had a real problem in front of them that they could solve and they finally had the technology to do it, to connect all these things. They knew it could run better. And it like it honestly was really rewarding from a kind of releasing latent energy because if you've ever been to an op center, there's a lot of heads down. Like, hey, I'm gonna bulk close these <laughs> 1,500 tickets, and that's my job every day. <laughs> it, it really sucks the life out of out of people if if they get stuck in in that kind of mode of operating. And it was very much like, hey, wow, I can really move on to writing my own automation now. And uh, like yeah. I can go on to the, the more thinking pieces of this work rather than getting stuck in the kind of the drudgery of, of ticket jockeying. I tell everyone who's not familiar with it, when I was in software development, we didn't have a big enough dev team to have, you know, just new product and then, um, you know, bug, bug team, QA yeah. team. And uh, our QA team, ops team, they did when they do would do rotations to it and like they they all kind of dreaded their rotation you know what i mean on, like, on call is dreaded. the worst yeah we had about <laughs> we had about 1200 engineers on call and it was always like all right what's what's this team's personality like are they going to answer are they going to pick up are they you know empowered to do it? we we saw a uh, once you cut once you recognize as a centralized ops team that they have other work to do and that you can really improve their life by just giving them higher quality and, and actionable incidents. They, they instantly kind of change the way that they interact with you. Cause all of a sudden you're reliable and high yeah. quality. And up to that point, you know, I, I think now that I've seen a whole bunch of organizations over the past three and a half years of big Panda, I realized it wasn't just Activision Blizzard. It's actually everybody who suffers from that same kind of just organizational dysfunction through ops got left behind in the cloud transformation. Ops kind of stuck with an old, very outdated way of manually processing uh, incidents and events. And there's, there's all these little compartments of data at most organizations, little silos, little fragmented tool sets. And they really, it really just, uh, it lands on them with a big responsibility to keep services running and without the capabilities technology-wise to do it. Give us an idea of what is the next thing, because this is a great way to frame up and understand the problem. And it sounds like the, the software already is delivering, your, you know, Big Pan is delivering the solution. But I have a feeling that there's a big desire to go even further. And you kind of hinted at it, and I'd love to hear where your opinions are of the future and where you think the company is going to attempt it, you know, Big picture. What's it look like? What does this space look like in five to ten years? Let's talk to the preempt. I don't know how the best way to describe it, but I call it preemptive solving. Like if I if it can identify it, why can't it solve it? And it sounds like it's gonna get there. I, you mentioned some simple solutions it can start solving now. Give us an idea of where what this looks like and what it's gonna take to get to the point where it's like. Is there a world in the future where the the, the software like debugs itself. Like, I don't know, like the product debugs, Absolutely. like that might be crazy. Let, let's, let's, I'd like to hear your yeah, opinion on this. And um, it's really interesting because, you know, I get to interact with our development teams uh, pretty heavily and see how they're using generative AI in all of their tooling, you know, beyond co-pilot, but just all of the things that they can do now um, to make development go much, much more smoothly. There's still, though, these silos, these, these pieces of awareness and knowledge 
that exist on different teams doing different things, all of which are involved in running a large scale service. And what you have is a whole bunch of documents and a whole bunch of like JIRA tickets and code commits and CICD streams and activity that is going on that right now is unmeasured. And, you know, one of the big ones, Slack, Uh, we have an operations channel at Big Panda and it's full of every change. And then every incident that occurs on our services, whether it affects the the end provision of that service or not. And uh, then we have incident channels and that's how we dealt with that incident in that particular instance. And then we have a support channel that's coming in from uh, our support team and, and they're reporting on customer issues in there. And then we have our own internal paging and, and our, our alerting. And uh, people are writing. I don't know how, how you you experience every day, but for me, I'm probably writing 10,000, 15,000 words in Slack per day at, at least. And <laughs> it, it's all of this knowledge and all these decisions now with LLMs, you basically use them as a translation layer to bring all that unstructured data that's sitting on the sidelines into the operations of that service. And, you know, traditionally there were two big camps. There was IT service management and IT operations management. And there were two separate boxes. They're converging because they're basically the same thing. And then there's this other thing called security operations that CISOs care a whole lot about that needs, it has about a 50, 60% overlap with operations, IT ops in terms of what it needs as, you know, What's the blast radius of this event? When was this change executed? What is the topology of the service? What do we know about this that can help us assess the vulnerability of it or the potential impact of it? And that all of that uh, data, that unstructured data on the sidelines is now in the process of getting turned into, uh, you know, vectorized DBs uh, that you can now say, here's everything that's going on. So you have this just new level of awareness of what's going on internally to your service. Then, you know, and I could go on and on, but there is the third party layer because we all rely Mm. on, you know, somebody, some cloud provider, some ISP. 100%. And there's the (laughs) kind of underlying fundamentals. And usually organizations have no idea what's going on there. And the vast majority we go to, like if my provider is running a maintenance, he'll send me an email. And that email is a pretty bad way to communicate a maintenance window that is going to affect a specific subservice that's part of my overall service stack. Yeah, you're alerting one person of <laughs> many to all these changes that impact all or yeah. it, so, <laughs> potentially so all. Now, there's, there's a set of shared services that you want to know about and you want to know not in kind of uh, email form or anything else. You want that incorporated into your overall awareness, how your services are operating and what's happening with them. Same way if you're running a maintenance, you're doing a software update or patch. Of course, you know that's going on. Right now, we ingest that already. But I want to bring that third party layer in as well. And the input from your own organization, if you if your customer service team is getting 3000 tickets a minute, which back to my Activision Blizzard days, that definitely did happen. That's a huge indication of a service failure. You have human monitoring going on as well. And there's just so all of this to say that the sensing of what is happening is going to massively improve over the next few years. And it takes time. Really, organizations are the longest piece of that. And then the other big, the other big component is 
your knowledge of what you've done historically around those. How did you handle a similar incident before is similarly going to improve. And that's going to get to the point where it's you, you rapidly, okay, this is what I did last time. It took me 90 minutes to diagnose and remediate that time. This time I'm going to do exactly the same thing, but much, much faster. And then you start mm-hmm. to see, you know, everybody says, why are there repeated failures? Well, there's lots of reasons for repeated failures, but if I see clusters of similarity over time, I can start to predict, hey, every Tuesday at 4 p.m., you run into a capacity issue that you don't really consider it a capacity issue. It usually takes you a while to figure that out, and it fades out before that ever happens. And now like in the incident data, historical metrics that, that exist, I can start to see those patterns and bring them to bear on the real-time sensing that's coming in. So that the people that have to run these services, actually, you know, the thing we're researching right now is how do I put in the UI a predicted incident to say, hey, in in about two hours, this is probably going to happen. These alerts are going to fire. And then in one hour, 50 minutes, say, hey, the first alert just fired. And here's how it looks from here based on what has happened historically. And once you start putting that level of kind of awareness and insight into a system, organizations rapidly like figure out what are the recurring issues and they start to go upstream, they shift left and say, how can we prevent that ever from happening? Let's increase capacity proactively there before we ever do it. Let's let's modify our change processes to prevent changes from triggering all these symptomatic alerts. There's a ton of just context that's missing right now that is preventing organizations from being much, much more proactive and from automating. That would be the other leg of the triangle is if you try to use an Ansible or any orchestration system, uh, one of the limiting factors is you you have to know that you're remediating the right thing. You're launching the right remediation right. process. And that can be really hard to determine. Well, if I add more context to your sensing, all of a sudden I can convert that very, very easily with an LLM into an Ansible playbook and you're off to the races. And all I need to do, you know, at first it'll be human in the loop. Hey, approve this make sure it's good, look it over, and then then you press go. Um, I think in the future, as, a, as trust improves, it's going to be more and more, okay, we're just automating that whole workflow now because it, it works 99.99% of the time. So let's just get rid of it. And that's, everybody says that, but I think, you know, the big technology change for me, because it, it has been disruptive since about this time last year, ChatGPT entered the scene. LLMs, from a data ingest perspective, allow you to access a whole lot of knowledge that's on the sidelines. And then from the output side, they let you put it in whatever format you need, whether it's for humans or systems or both. Uh, And they do Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, very, very well. And I think that's going to be a core capability that is limited by organizations' ability to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think there's a, I always think that there's going to be a, uh, a due layer to like a verification layer almost because LLMs, of course, they learn from the information they receive, but they cannot judge whether the information they have is good yeah. or bad. Right. So they have to actually know that solution A when was, you know, solve the problem 
95% of the time. Solution B solved it 60% of the time. And solution C solved it 10% of the time. Therefore, debunk C, debunk B, always go to A until proven other. You know, like something's got to teach it that. Otherwise, if it if it doesn't make that judgment and it incorporates like solutions from all, you might get something even worse. Who knows? It's awesome <laughs> right now uh, on the rapid prototyping team. We're using a second LLM to evaluate the work of the first LLM. And we'll run it through maybe three cycles. And that's getting more and more common. And you almost have like a um, an embedding or a pre-trained LLM that's really good at QA. And, you know, yeah. imagine it, it's familiar with all these systems. It knows all your code commits. It actually, it knows quite a bit about how you're, what you're trying to change. It has the right context. And its whole job is to find flaws in that writing of the playbook for Ansible, let's say. And that's that's super powerful because you just put like three or four oh, yeah. layers and you get to really, really low percentages of failures at that point. That is good. The uh, with the context story you have is is is, I think, so relevant because so many people just rely on data and they make big decisions based on data. But it's like you got to understand how it was collected, where it was collected from. Like there's so many other factors. It brings me back to the story I've told. Uh, I've told others and I'm going to tell it again, which is when we used to work in social media management with the, with Home Depot, they had a problem with a customer uh, experience. People were complaining. And so they staffed up more for their busiest. They went by sales volume. So sales volumes up, let's staff more. But then they noticed their complaints got worse. And so they were like, why are these people complaining? And so then they timestamped, they started timestamping the surveys, not for when, because you know, on the receipt mm-hmm. On the receipt, they like linked a survey. So they're like, well, when did they actually buy the thing? And so they started finding out that all of the complaints came from the evenings and none of the complaints came from the morning, but all their sales came from the morning and their sales weren't as good at night. So they threw them off. They finally figured it out with context. Yeah. The people that come in the morning to Home Depot are generally general contractors and stuff. Yeah, they buy a lot of stuff. They also don't yeah. need help. They know what they're buying. It's the people like me who come in after work. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. And so they got their staffing systems all messed up because of that one piece of contextual data that they weren't evaluating, which is sales does not indicate need. Yeah. In fact, for them, it was reversed. It's like, oh, the people that buy the most need the least amount of help. That, the level of nuance that is required for most people to appreciate how that yeah. data was be, like, you know, you asked about trends a little bit. I think getting data savvy is probably the overarching trend, like the importance of doing it properly and not making yeah. kind of very basic assumptions on very basic data, data relevancy, quality coverage, that those are just kind of macro over all of this. That's, they're learning fast. And I think, you know, uh, startups are in a great spot because it's a lot easier to get 300 people into a, a data-driven uh, mindset or data-informed mindset and make them sophisticated that way than it is if you're a 40,000 person organization. It's a great time to be in the kind of startup industry because things, you know, it's being disrupted and things are moving real fast. There you go. Now give us, a, you know, we don't, we don't have too much time left, but we want to learn a little bit more. I, t- I talked about before we even started this interview, you have a very interesting history. You went to the Naval, U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. We know that's a very difficult school, but you didn't major in something technical. You majored in history. How did that how did you end up when you and you also served as a Marine? How did you go from history, the Marines to tech? Because there's no clear, if I go trace your LinkedIn, it's not no, clear. It, it, isn't. <laughs> it is a very, you don't think, Hey, Marine Corps, 
there's the center of innovation. And, and for for everyone that's listening, listen, I'm not saying this is you. This is definitely not you. You're clearly not. But Marines have a reputation. All right. They have a reputation. <laughs> you live in North Carolina. You can't deny yeah. it. Yeah, you can't deny it. Like, you know, people talk about how the Marine Corps, their favorite food is crayons. Okay, like, how does this happen? You went from, but you went to Naval Academy. So we know you're very smart because that's a very selective institution. Give us give us the picture. Yeah, Annapolis is a great school. Uh, It's a very hard school. And um, I, you know, they do service selection. I wanted to go Marine Aviation. So they do service selection based on your GPA and your order of merit. So the first guy gets to pick anything. The second person okay. gets to pick whatever's left after the first guy. So I had to do well enough in my classes to uh, to graduate. And the engineering professors and math professors, they graded a lot tougher. But the core curriculum is such that even as a history, I was a systems engineer, engineering major for the first two years. And then I saw my GPA and I was like, I'm not going to get to flight school if I keep that. I'm going to be driving boats, which, no, you know, nothing against boat drivers, but that's not what I wanted to do. Sure. And so I switched over to history. I was 10 credits away from a math major, though. Like I got through differential equations and statics and dynamics and engineering and my grades weren't great, but I understood it. And you have to do things like weapons systems. Like I know how a, a seeker head on a missile works. So coming out of the Naval Academy, I was kind of like, I would say a generalist, a general technology expert. And then I got to aviation and went through flight school for three years. And the amount that you learn in very short order there and then being deployed over and over again. And uh, I got a chance to serve as a forward air controller. So I was working with, uh, you know, airstrikes and jets and imagery systems and, and intelligence information. The uh, combination of that stuff, it moved really, really fast while I was in from kind of the old school hierarchical military to a very decentralized decision making small team organization. And so I picked up a ton during the 11 years I was a, a Marine. And a lot of the innovation came out of that of just, hey, we have to be able to do better uh, in order to win out there. And because uh, it's hard, like fighting is is tough and you have to come up with solutions. Yeah, no we, we helped. I worked with two Harrier pilots on the, one of the first uh, UAVs that was just taking 4K video and stitching it together at one of our uh, combat operations centers. And it was awesome. It was game changing. We suddenly knew what what the bad guys were doing. Uh, in a way we'd never had visibility on before. And we were working with a little startup company to do that. So yes, did my 11 years and then said, hey, I have two daughters. I'm going to do another deploy, a fifth deployment. Uh, I don't want to do that to them. So uh, I'm going to get out. I went and got my MBA over at London Business School. And uh, that's where I linked up with a friend of mine who, strangely enough, he was a crew chief in the type of helicopter I flew. And uh, really good guy. He was head of operations for Activision Blizzard over in Europe. And he needed some help. And I was doing my MBA there. So he said, hey, Jason, can you come over? Because we had worked together before. And um, then I got basically a uh, fire hose uh, of an introduction <laughs> to how do, how do you run you know, massive gaming services? globally and how do you localize them how do you QA them how do you develop them and then how do you operate them and then serendipitously one of the guys who ran uh, Microsoft Xbox and was responsible for the operations of Office early on at Microsoft 25 year office guy he came to Activision Blizzard and said we got to do better at ops we have we have some big problems and he gave me kind of we got along really well 
he was a former paramedic uh, and and firefighter. So something about first responders and Marines, we see eye to eye somehow. High pressure. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> he gave me an opportunity to really experiment, and he gave me some developers and um, some a, a really good reporting and process and data processing team, and then a centralized knock and. Between all of those, I was able to piece together over a period of about a decade, hey, this is how this stuff actually works in Korea, in China, in Europe, in the U.S., with all of our different games, all of our different teams. And uh, yeah, I didn't get the degree, but I was kind of force fed a whole lot of information that not in crayon format, but uh, (laughs) definitely um, I had to learn and. Early on, I, would, I remember looking at Ashok Vishwanathan, one of the, one of my uh, development uh, engineers, and saying, "Did I say that right?" And he's like, "Yeah, you got it." And that was kind of the seal of approval. Like, "Yeah, you understand it uh, well enough to to operate it." And since then, been really lucky just to kind of absorb through osmosis from a, real, a lot of really really smart people in the tech industry. It all makes sense when you when you when you filled in the gaps when you add that context right like the 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 pressure you're used to pressure used to learning technical things, um, so it makes sense that given the ops software development world you could learn that as well. I want to say thanks for sharing that. Before you go, I want to ask you some simple fun questions so our audience can get to know you a little bit better and uh, <laughs> have a little fun. All right, are you a gamer? Sometimes. <laughs> when you do play, what do you play? I got into Starfield a little bit, and my daughter just uh, started Diablo 4, so I've been playing those two a little bit. There you go. How old are your kids now? Uh, 17 and 15. Ooh, do they think you're cool? My older one does. My younger one rarely talks to me. Uh, <laughs> I think it's because the older one's getting ready for college. She sees those bills coming. She's like, I'm going to be dead. You live out in Montana right now. Is that accurate? Yeah. What's the best part about Montana? What brings you there? Oh, just the space and the the, the mountains are right there. I'm I'm very lucky to to live where I live. It's just the the farmers market. I buy my eggs from my neighbor and I buy my steak from the guy who has the cows in the field. So it's <laughs> it's just it's a whole different way. I lived in California for 20 years, and Montana was just it, it's uh it's just a different way to to go about kind of community building and everything else. You were talking with our producer earlier. Are you a skier or a snowboarder or both? Oh, I'm a hardcore skier. Uh, snowboarders, they do their thing. I do mine. I surfed for a while, so I I, I can kind of, I, I tried it once, but uh, I've been skiing for 30 plus years and uh, I love it. That That's the most fun you can have standing up. There you go. What is the best or your favorite place you have skied in your lifetime? That's a really good question. Uh, Backcountry. There's a peak in the Sierra Nevadas called uh, it's Lost Cannon, and it's up at about nine thousand feet. And we got one of those Sierra dumps where it's just like four feet of snow. And I was skinning up and got to ski down. Um, it was back actually. It, it was fun. We it was I was in the Marines. I was in a mountain warfare training center, and the <laughs> Navy Hilo guys from Fallon needed to get some hours. And we were like, that sounds like a hella skiing opportunity. And so I got a ride in a Navy Seahawk. That's what I was about to ask is if you, how did you get up the mountain? And now I know <laughs> the, it was the Navy dock, uh, a guy named John Moore, who uh, he hooked it up because one of the flight surgeons over there knew him. He was our high altitude specialist. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we can get him out here. And 
it was awesome just landing in a in a seahawk up at altitude and, and jumping out in putting your skins on and then going up the backside of a mountain. Just, uh, did, did you have a guide going down or did you know the path? How did, I'm always curious about backcountry or did you just wing oh, it? No, it was safe. Like we were doing, um, it, it was technically training okay. and we had avalanche transceivers. We were both, we're both mountain leaders, uh, and heavily trained on how to okay. move through the snow. All military skiing is backcountry. <laughs> there's no room slopes. there you go <laughs> so, yeah it, it's uh it, but it was just awesome because you know nobody else is out there it's quiet all you hear you're in the white room and all you hear is the swish you know of your own skis in the snow and we we're just laughing the whole way down that is awesome well jason man i really appreciate you joining us today on the show um thanks for sharing a little bit about your background and i can tell you i i can't i know there are I mean, I, I would assume everyone is cheering you on. Developers everywhere are cheering you on. They want Big Panda to succeed. And I know that they want, and I know it's a huge, hairy, audacious goal, but I love the fact that you're in that space. They want tickets to be solved without their, I mean, like that's, that's, that's like, that's like, you know, that is like Nirvana right there. And, uh, I mean, I'm excited to see how this place transforms. We're just getting started. It feels like. And so to see the progress that's being made already is pretty epic. Like what does the next 10 years hold? Uh, who, who knows how op centers will operate? Like, and for us as customers of any service, just envision a world where that spinning wheel of no action just goes away like that. And it, and just imagine everything banking travel gaming doesn't matter imagine never seeing it it's in reach uh, absolutely uh and it's going to be like electricity or water you just it just works there you go jason thanks for joining us today on it visionaries thanks a lot albert